So, welcome back to uh, our, our series on James. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. We're starting a new chapter, but as we're going to look at, chapter breaks really shouldn't matter. So, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to start in chapter two, and then we'll pray and, and get into the lesson. So, if you if you would turn with me to James chapter two. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. You have, not, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the law according to the scripture, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us to worship you and to rest in you, to lay aside the, the cares of the world, uh, to lay aside even the legitimate things that occupy our time, so that we could be refreshed in meditating upon our relationship with you, in meditating upon the love that you have so freely poured out on us. And I pray that as we, as we meditate on this, that we would be moved to have the eyes of faith and not see as the world sees, uh, not see as those who look only at appearances, but I pray that we would be moved throughout the day as we meditate upon your goodness towards us to see our own neediness and that we would see others as those who have an equal need for Jesus' love. Pray that you would give us... uh, accuracy as we think through your word, that you would help anything I say that is wrong to fall to the ground, and that, uh, that you, would, you would work in all of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so one Sunday at a small rural church, two men visit. One man is a wealthy former businessman who has uh, recently retired to his his favorite second home in the country. And he's uh, 
he's ready to he's ready to settle into a more peaceful life after the hustle and bustle of of uh, business. This man, um, the the other man, was uh, just a, a thoroughly average local, maybe maybe less than average. In that he uh, he had multiple run-ins in, with the law, in and out of prison, hung out with the with the wrong set, uh, you might say. Um, but honestly, neither man was was unstained by the world. The the this wealthy man, though he may have seemed an upstanding citizen, left his wife for a uh, for his high school sweetheart, who was also married. And he, uh, he, he left his wife to be with her, and, um, and his business life was so, so busy. He was so driven by his own desires. He was so driven by his own pursuits that his relationship with his now grown children is, is distant, to say the least. Both came to church that day searching for something. What exactly, they didn't know, but they both came searching for uh, for something, the the our our average fellow, I'll, I'll just call him Joe. Not because of Joe Fowler. <laughs> so we'll call him Joe in the average Joe sense. Um, he was uh, he was without a home. He was pretty smelly, and. Uh, and he just never really hung out much with people who, uh, people who weren't trying to manipulate him. And so every every conversation there was always a bit of an edge, because he was he was quite used to uh, he was quite used to to finding what the angle was, and he himself always had an angle. As time went on, uh, they both continued to come to the church. The uh, the the wealthy man would 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 come anytime he. He just felt that urge. He would, he would come and visit. It was regular, but maybe not what we would hope to be faithful. Um, and, and the other man, um, the other man just kept, kept coming. And he, he, he actually was what we would call faithful in attendance. You might not think that he was faithful by looking at his life, but he was faithful in his, in his attendance. Well, time went on, and the, the wealthy man came to, to, to love this church. Um, why? Hard to say, but he came to love this church, and he donated enormous sums of money to the church. Uh, maybe it was some sort of deep guilt, but he had donated such sums that this church that was previously meeting in, in a dingy uh, former tax office, just imagine those lovely lights, right? It was meeting in a dingy former tax office, had enough funds to go and build their own church. It was small. It was a small church, but it was lovely, replete with a steeple. And, and they, they just cherished this building as their new home for this little tiny church. They installed a plaque on the front that was commemorating the kindness of this wealthy benefactor. And whenever he visited, the congregation would welcome him warmly, uh, thank him profusely for their their lovely building. Meantime, our uh, our other friend uh, continued to come, continued to be the slight thorn in some people's sides because he was just difficult to be with. Um, but he came every single week, sat off in a corner, 
the wealthy man, though he came and though he loved the church, could never quite get on board with the, with the constraints that come with being a Christian. He, he, he never could quite come on board with being a Christian, but he loved the spirituality, the, the feeling of community and warmth. And, and so that, that drew him to the church. But the other man, uh, the other man was, was actually rather bothered every Sunday. Every Sunday, new questions would come up, and he would immediately make a beeline for the pastor and pester him with questions. How is this possible? How is that possible? And the pastor would graciously answer some of the questions with sort of the type of face that if you were to look over would indicate that he was self-consciously being gracious. It was a bit of a, a, bit of a, a hunted look in his eyes. And one Sunday, particularly, the, it really bugged him because he was talking with this, this uh, shabby man and, and, and he noticed the wealthy man walked through and exit the church and he didn't even get to say hello. And it just kind of rankled inside. But anyhow, he continued to answer this man's questions. Well, again, time goes on. The wealthy man died. And it was in his will that he was to have a he was ha- to have his funeral at this church, this very church. And so the pastor went about busily preparing for the funeral, because surely this would have to be a dignified service for a dignified man. Well, about the same time, our our uh, friend Joe realized the lights came on. And all those questions that he, that he had, how could it be, how could it be that some guy 2,000 years ago could die and have any impact on me? Suddenly, the lights came on and he understood it. And he, and he excitedly called the pastor asking to, to be baptized because he's, as he's reading, he realizes that, well, what should this newfound belief lead him to? Well, it should lead him to, to be baptized. And he calls the pastor, but the pastor was in the throes of preparing for this funeral. So he says, uh, before even knowing what he's talking about, he says, no, 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 just call me in a few weeks. I, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe have more time then. Well, the funeral comes, and, and the, uh, the, the pastor gave a, a sermon, but maybe we would really call it a eulogy of this, of this man's life and his generosity. And so, in this story, which is largely made up, in this story, which of these two men was better loved? It's a good question. That's a great question. Which of these two men was better loved? Anne-Marie said, by who? By whom? Right? So, which of these two men was better served? I'm sorry? Possibly. Possibly. Exactly. Insofar as the pastor gave attention, he was, the, the wealthy man was better served. But I think what we want to see in what James is saying is that, in fact, neither of them was served. Neither of them was loved. The rich man desperately needed the gospel brought to bear. The poor man got the gospel, but didn't get the love and honor that should come with a new believer. So, as we think about this passage, 
We need to rewind to, to uh, chapter 1, where James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This passage in, in chapter 2 is not a new thought. It's continuing in an exposition, an explanation of how do we be doers and not hearers only. The first way that was brought up was uh, that, we, that we not have an unbridled tongue, that we not just shoot off whatever comes through our brain. I'm guilty of this. I really understand that from experience. Um, so, and he goes so far as to say that the, the, the religion of that person with an unbridled tongue is, is a worthless religion. And in contrast to that worthless religion, he says that true religion, pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, our passage connects to that in that, in that if we have partiality, we will, we will not notice the widows and the orphans because they're insignificant and weak. Nor can we be unstained by the world because we're so enamored by the glitter and, 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 and flair of the world. So he opens by saying, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Right away, in his very first two words, he's practicing what he's about to preach. He says, my brothers. Now remember, who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. He could have said, my beloved. That's fine. That's used throughout the epistles. He could have said, my beloved. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in my brother, Jesus Christ. I mean, that would be the name drop of the century, right? I mean, if, if someone, and we all like to do that kind of thing. If, uh, if, if someone came in and we're in a conversation with them and they're like, you know, last week, I was, I was having breakfast with Elon, and he was giving me, he was telling me about what was going to happen with SpaceX. It's so cool. I mean, we would all be like, whoa, you had breakfast with Elon Musk? Wow. That would be an amazing name drop. But instead, James seems to have grasped what Jesus says in Matthew 12. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, maybe including James, we don't know. But his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my brothers, and my, excuse me, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. James recognizes that the most important way in which he is Jesus' brother is not by blood, but by faith. And that unites him to the very people he's speaking to. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here again, you could, you could say that that sentence alone is enough exposition on why he says to show no partiality. Because when you say the Lord of glory, all sorts of imagery should come up from Scripture. We could start in Exodus there are repeated times in Exodus even before this, but, but strikingly, as Moses is going to Mount Sinai to receive the tablets, it says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. 
We read of the glory of the Lord again at the dedication of the temple built by Solomon. And when I say again, there's not a gap. There's a huge gap here. We read about it all throughout. I'm just giving us these frog leaps. But we read about it again at the dedication of the temple. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Isaiah prophesies about Jerusalem's coming peace and forgiveness. And we hear the promise, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then we see in John 1, the fulfillment of that promise. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the writer of Hebrews confirms this promise. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the glory of the Lord. And that's a small, little, tiny synopsis of certain passages. But this is the glory of the Lord. And hearing that title should fill us with awe and dazzle us with Jesus' might, preeminence, and majesty. But this same Jesus, the Lord of glory, was crucified in order to make purification for our sins. As we read in uh, throughout scripture, and as, as is summarized in the Westminster Catechism, uh, Jesus was humiliated for our sake by taking on flesh and going all the way through obedience to, the, uh, to death on the cross. 1 Corinthians 2.8 makes this connection very clear for us. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, who is majestic, who is high and lifted up, who's exalted, was crucified for our sake. He became nothing. He emptied himself, as we read in Philippians 2, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have to ask ourselves, how can we truly hold the faith in such a one as this while also harboring partiality? The two can't go together. So James gives us a much more concise parable uh, about the man wearing a golden, uh, gold ring and fine clothing coming into the assembly. And we may take from that that he's only talking about financial distinctions. That, that partiality is only about rich and poor. And that might kind of play into the zeitgeist of our age, that, that everything comes down to worldly distinctions. But I don't think that's what uh, uh, James is saying, and I don't think that's what the whole of Scripture is saying about partiality. He's giving an example here 
one that would have would have been very real to them and let's be let's be honest it is a continuing stumbling block for us monetary differences wealth makes us perk up and look at who's wealthy uh, that's not the only way we can show partiality but it's a great example to expose our own sin but there are other forms of partiality uh, can anyone can anyone think of an example, and there are many, so there's not like a single answer, but can anyone just pepper out some, some examples in Scripture of partiality being shown? Sinfully. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's actually Alabama. Um, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, <clears throat> the Good Samaritan, yep. Any others? Yeah. Yep, the lame uh, being overlooked. Um, another example is, is when uh, the people were bringing children and infants to the Lord, and, uh, and we read in Luke that when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them, but Jesus called them, uh, called them to him, saying, Let the, the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, this, that passage, right after that passage in Luke, actually, right after that passage in Luke, Mark, and Matthew, we immediately read of the account of the, the rich young ruler, as we call, who is a perfect candidate, from a worldly perspective, to be in the kingdom of God. He's wealthy. He's a lawkeeper. Of course, Jesus exposes the, the, uh, the lie there, but he's a law keeper. And after exposing his idolatrous love of his of, uh, possessions, uh, Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And those around were astonished. They're thinking, I, I'm, I'm speculating, but they're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy, this guy's perfect. Don't we want him? Jesus doesn't see through the eyes of, of, of worldly appearances. So right in, the, right in that, those two passages, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, we're given this, this picture of partiality shown towards children, because they, they're, they're too weak, and yet seeing that the rich young ruler, well, he's not a candidate because he, his, his heart is not... He's not attached uh, to Jesus by faith. So James goes on, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and judges and become judges with evil thoughts? So interestingly here, I think we could argue, now bear with me, but I think we could argue that the, the, the becoming judges part actually isn't the issue because we read in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 through 3, Or do you not know that the saints 
will judge the world. Paul is, sorry, aside, Paul is talking here about, uh, he's, he's chastising the Corinthians for taking all of their cases, all of their disputes to, uh, to the courts rather than dealing with them internally in the household of faith. Not to say that there's never a case for that, but just many of our disputes should be handled in the church. And if it can't be handled there, if it's actually against the law, that's a whole different topic. However, Paul is chastising them for this. And he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So the key is not that we're, we're judging because there is a time for judgment. It's that we're judging with evil thoughts. We're judging not with the mind of God. We're judging with our own glasses on. Alicia. Who you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And this, so none of this is new either to James. James isn't just pulling this out of his hat. As a matter of fact, I think we could make the argument that, that not, not understanding this means that we don't understand who God is. We don't understand who we are. And we don't understand God's law. Because going back to Leviticus, uh, we have commands not to to show partiality. Leviticus 19, uh, verse 15. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Deuteronomy 117a. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall not hear the small and the great, excuse me, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Um, we, we, could, we could give a lot more examples. Proverbs, partiality in judging is not good. That's probably the most succinct of all of the ones I found. It's just partiality in judging is not good. End of story. Perfect. Um, Proverbs 18.5, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. Or Romans 2.11, 
for God shows no partiality. Uh, interestingly, there's an account, I can't remember the exact uh, chapter and verse, apologies, but there's an account where uh, the, the uh, Pharisees send people to, to interrogate Jesus, and they come and say, we know you're this, that, and the other thing, and that you uh, do not make distinctions among persons. So, uh, clearly, a marked characteristic of our Lord, so much so that even his detractors couldn't help but notice it, was that he did not show partiality. He did not uh, show res- uh, uh, make distinctions in respect of persons, as some translations would call it. And we also fail to see that this is God's modus operandi. And James goes on, listen, again, my beloved brothers. He's reminding them again and again of, of their incredible privileged position, not because of the reasons they may think, but because of scriptural reasons. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Again, I think we could insert, you have dishonored whatever category we have used that is not scriptural to make distinctions. So think of those examples. We could, we could, we could talk about a ton of examples, uh, but, uh, but notably, Hannah's song even says, uh, even talks about how God raises the lowly. So Hannah being, being given Samuel, God honors this poor woman who's been, uh, who's been just beleaguered by, uh, what is it, Peniah, the, the, the other wife who's got all the, all the children. She's been beleaguered, she's lowly, and yet God gives her a son, and that son is, uh, is Samuel, who was an amazing man of God. Rahab, a prostitute, one who is, who is far from the kingdom, not part of the people of Israel, and yet God gives her faith and a position in uh, the lineage of Jesus. Um, David, David was one of the great passages to talk about how God does not look at appearances as man does, is when Samuel goes to, to anoint uh, the next king of Israel, he looks at his older brother, the first one is like, yeah, this guy. And God says, no, not that guy. <laughs> Going all the way down the line to, to little David. And we think of David as the great king that he was, but he clearly was like a scrappy little kid because uh, Samuel didn't think he was, he was going to be worth beans. Then we can go... Um, uh, but this doesn't, sorry, this doesn't mean that it's to the exclusion of the rich. Again, some in our culture might want to make, dist- tell us not to make distinctions by making distinctions. Oh, so we need to, we need to act as though the poor are the only ones that, that are anything in the kingdom of God, and the rich, well, they're inherently evil. Well, no. We've got Abraham, Job, Nicodemus, Lydia. The point is, the point is that God doesn't make distinctions on those grounds. Now, Paul does say to the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, the world, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, this is, this is the key, so that no human being might boast in the uh, excuse me. No human being might boast 
in the presence of God. Sorry, there's something wrong there. Uh, they, they cannot boast in anything but God. So when we don't honor who God honors, James is saying we, we dishonor the poor and, and we therefore dishonor God. Does that make sense? So <clears throat> we fail to see that it's God's modus operandi, but then James moves on to see uh, to show the, just the, the absurdity of it. <laughs> he, are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? It's almost like a wake-up call, like, uh, hello. <laughs> it's like, it makes me think of uh, Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations, and the main character, Pip. He, uh, he's absolutely enamored with this, this beautiful girl, but she's mean. She's just cruel, and she does all these terrible things to him, and he's still like, uh. that's That's what we're like when we show unqualified partiality, just, just oh, wow. You're famous. Oh. And they could trample all over you, but you just keep going because you, you're just amazed by, by their apparent exalted state. James is saying, wake up. They're the ones who are taking you to court, and more importantly, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. How can we hold up in high regard Someone who tramples the name of Jesus, who should who who completely outstrips them in glory, and yet became a little baby to a to a poor family. So then he goes on: If you really fulfill the law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, contrary to what... Martin Luther said about James. Uh, James is actually in agreement here with Paul. Uh, because Paul says in Galatians 3, which itself echoes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be, ev any, excuse me, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So James is reminding us that if we we can, we can think that we are righteous in all these other areas, and yet if we're showing partiality, if we're judging with evil thoughts, then it doesn't matter our righteousness over here. We've, transgr we've transgressed God's law. But it also should remind us of what James said already in chapter 1, where he talks about not being doers of the word, uh, sorry, being doers of the word, not hearers only. And he says, in verse 24, for he looks at himself and goes away at once. Excuse me. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget, forgets what he was like. So we go to church. We hear sermons that remind us of this amazing grace 
that saved wretches like us. We're, we're, we, we're encouraged by the, the magnificence of that, of that unconditional love towards us. And then someone that we perceive as a wretch walks in and all of that fades away. And we forget two things. We forget that we were wretched and continue to transgress God's law. Yet Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And we forget that we are new creatures. We, when we look in the mirror, we should see A, our wretchedness, but we should see two, uh, the, uh, B, that, that we're, we're made new. We're new creatures. We should have new motives, new, new priorities, new categories for understanding the world around us. And when we turn away, we forget that as well. We forget that we are new creatures and we act just like we were before. And we become, we continue to be slaves to, uh, we continue to be slaves to the, the way we used to think. We continue to be slaves to the way the world thinks. So when someone walks in that we perceive as wretched, our response should be, that person doesn't look like someone I would want to be with. I'm not saying you have to think that, but maybe that's your first response. The question is, what do you do next? You should move on to think, but by some miracle, God's mercy has been poured out on me in such a way that Jesus wants to be with me and even calls me his friend. So I'm going to go over and I'm going to talk to that person and I'm going to befriend that person because if Jesus could befriend me, I can figure out how to befriend them. That make sense? We have to reshape how we think because we need to remember that God's love flowing from the Father through the Son and applied by the Spirit, God's love is what makes us lovely. We can never forget that it's only because of God's love that we're lovely. And that's not to say that you, you are lovely. You are, you are beloved brothers. God has washed you clean. He's washed me clean. And so there's a sense in which we are truly lovely, but that lovely ha loveliness has nothing to do with ourselves. So the, the amazing thing here is that the, the reason why this sin of partiality is so heinous is precisely the reason why we should be so encouraged, that we should be so uplifted and so just exuberant because it's the magnificence of God's love to us that makes our partiality so wicked. It's like that servant who was forgiven a great debt and then went and, and, and threw the guy in prison for having a much, much smaller debt. The reason why that was so wrong was because he'd been forgiven so much more. So the more we meditate on how much we have in Jesus, the more we will hate the sin of partiality, but also the more we'll, we'll be moved towards those people because we want to share with them the same love that Jesus has shared with us. We, when we were hungry, Jesus gave us food. When we were thirsty, he gave us drink. When we were a stranger, he welcomed us. When we were naked, he clothed us. When we were sick, he visited us. When we were in prison, he came to us. And if we don't do the same to the least of Jesus' brothers, then we're, we're in grave danger of judgment. But we don't need to come away from this 
weighed down by this impossible task. Because Jesus promises his spirit who will enable us to have the eyes of faith. We can't drum this up on ourselves. The, the, the only way that we can conquer per partiality in our hearts is by meditating on our desperate need for Jesus and by, by preaching to ourselves the incredible grace that has been shown to us. At the end of the day, going back to that initial example, that initial story, the poor man wasn't served well because he was dishonored. But in some ways, the one who had it worse was the rich man whose soul was neglected. Let that not be true of us. Let us, we, we should see all around us in two categories. They're either brothers in Christ in need of encouragement or sinners lost and enslaved to sin. And that should move us towards pity. That should move us towards giving them the gospel. Any questions or thoughts? I think we have just a few minutes.